There are no borders with Bitcoin, and from the beginning, its disruption has been global. Tune in to Borderless as Coindesk reporters Anna Badikova, Danny Nelson, and Tanzil Akhtar dissect their top most recent Bitcoin and cryptocurrency stories from around the world. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder that Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Welcome to Borderless. I'm Anna Baidakova from Moscow, Russia. And I'm Tanzi Lakta from Lancashire in United Kingdom. And I'm Danny Nelson from Park City, Utah in the United States. On today's show, we're going to discuss India's proposed crypto ban, the darknet markets and who loves them most, and another new chapter in Virgil Griffith's North Korea saga. So let's start with India, probably, Taz. Thanks, Anna. One of the biggest stories to break involves India, and I'm not just talking about the farmers' protests, which has had Greta Thunberg and Rihanna chime in and sensationalize the issue over social media. This concerns crypto. So the Indian parliament is considering a government-introduced bill that would ban private cryptocurrencies in its up-and-coming budget session. So given that the ruling party controls both houses of the parliament, the chances of the bill's passage are considered good. So this would allow the Indian government to create a state-sanctioned digital alternative currency. Since the first announcement was made at the end of January, there's been another discussion and the Indian government has hinted how it would move to regulate crypto, make an outright ban. So there's been further clarity and the government has said the aim would be to curb illicit cryptocurrency transactions and bar their use in payments. So just to put this situation into context, according to research by Paxwell, India is the second biggest Bitcoin nation in Asia after China and the sixth largest in the world. So that's after the US, Nigeria, China, Canada and the UK. Between January and November last year, citizens made around 74.9 million Bitcoin transactions worth of transactions on Paxwell. So that just gives you an idea how large the Indian market is. Also, industry watchers, the whole discussion has kind of made people nervous around banning crypto. And my personal view is that India won't ban private cryptocurrencies. I mean, they can make it difficult for the average person to use it as a form of payment. But I think in general, the tone being used is to crack down on crypto related scams. Anna and Danny, do you guys have any views on India uh, banning crypto? I think it's definitely good that they realize that they cannot just, you know, outright ban crypto and switched to a more precise, maybe outlook, like, should we ban like privacy coins or certain usage of cryptocurrency, which I'm not necessarily uh, approving of. But at least the government has a has an understanding that it's impossible to ban crypto just once and for all. Also, this isn't the first time that they've made similar, like such announcements. They've previously made announcements like this. And also, what other countries have actually gone through and banned crypto? I think Iran. I think Iran banned the transactions in crypto, like using it in businesses. Countries like Bolivia. Also, there is not many examples of outright bans of crypto around the world, I think. Yeah, it's it's almost impossible really to ban cryptocurrency. What you can possibly do as a country is go after the companies and businesses that are 
transacting with the cryptocurrency, perhaps by banning the exchanges or cracking down on them, go after the businesses, assuming that they're able to regulate the businesses effectively. But if they're actually trying to you know, put a stop to the complete use of a cryptocurrency within their jurisdiction, that's going to be a really heavy lift because you basically have to crack down on internet infrastructure itself. Now, that could be possible if you have a situation like the Great Firewall of China. But as we all know, it's very easy, or it's somewhat easy rather, to get around those blockades if you're internet savvy and you want to get something done. And you know, if you're a cryptocurrency user, you've almost certainly heard of what a VPN is. And therefore, the world is pretty much your oyster. I would say I can totally imagine a, a situation in which a country is cracking down on fiat on-ramps and really tightens up the control on the financial infrastructure and monitors all the transactions that might seem as a crypto purchase. And that might really stop, if not freeze, like depending on the level of aggressiveness uh, with which a state could go, that can really freeze crypto adoption, I believe. The, like fiat on ramps might be that weak point. But so far, I think countries mostly have been banning crypto as a mean of payment, saying that, okay, you cannot pay for goods and services in crypto. It's not a legal tender. Which this is basically what happened in Russia last summer. There was a bill, there was a draft bill that was approaching crypto extremely aggressively and basically banning all the crypto transactions on the Russian territory. But um, everybody started crying a fool, and very soon they withdrew that draft bill and crossed out all the most aggressive and stupid parts of it. So for now. Um, Crypto is only illegal as a mean of payment in Russia, but you can like buy and hold it. Interesting. I think another um, point to mention in this story is that there was talk of banning private cryptocurrencies as well. So there was a CEO of a Mumbai-based cryptocurrency exchange, Wazirx, so Nishal Shetty, and he criticized the announcement via Twitter saying that there is no such thing as a private cryptocurrency. And the bill is aimed at helping the RBI um, create its own central bank digital currency by banning the so-called private cryptos. So I think the government also has its own agenda. Um, what do you guys think? Like CBDCs obviously are very different to cryptos. So, Yeah, as a CBDC nerd myself, I'm pretty fascinated by the way that this bill is combining. Apparent. I, have, I mean, I haven't read the bill. But as it's being presented, it appears that the bill really is combining these two very different ideas that, you know, if you don't really understand how they work, kind of feel like they're the same. One being whatever private cryptocurrencies are, and then a, I guess, a public cryptocurrency, which would be a CBDC. But, you know, the BIS, which is the central bank for the central banks, has said for a while now that governments and central banks really aren't interested in putting out their own CBDC because they're feeling threatened by cryptocurrency. At least that's the sentiment among central banks. And so these politicians, they seem to be conflating this issue of private cryptocurrencies with the CBDC being a public cryptocurrency and feeling threatened by it, which I don't know enough about the Indian cryptocurrency landscape to understand. I think it's important that the governments try and understand the underlying technologies as well before passing similar bills in parliament. What do you guys think? 
Well, yeah. I mean, if the governments try to understand crypto, it's probably good. But what comes out from that understanding is a different thing. Obviously, like some governments already understood that the smartest way to proceed is not to ban, but just to control as much as they can, uh, which means controls the crypto transactions, have all the users KYC'd in the countries, probably know who owns what crypto wallet, which is the case in Switzerland, like the cryptocurrency exchanges must KYC crypto addresses. So basically, crypto wallets have, have, a, you know, have a name tag on them. Like most countries seem to hate private coins for a reason, like for these reasons, it's still very hard to crack the codes of currencies like Monero and really track them. I'm not sure, like at the point where all these governments come with some comprehensive regulation, Bitcoin itself might already have enough, uh, you know, sufficient privacy tools that would make tracing Bitcoin transactions much harder than now, that developers and miners already implemented Taproot, for example, which makes transactions more private. And that's going to progress, I guess. I think another notable point is that when this announcement came out, the price of Bitcoin didn't crash. So I don't know if you guys recall in 2017, whenever China or another country would say, we're going to ban crypto, the price would suddenly drop. It also shows that how much the sector itself has evolved, that people aren't scared. You know, if it, okay, it's kind of like made people nervous in India who hold crypto, but the world is kind of like, okay, shrugging off the announcement. Yeah, I think that was interesting to point out. Yeah, but like, did Bitcoin react when Janet Yellen said that? Yes. I was thinking maybe it's a matter of where those statements are coming from, because the US is like the largest crypto market currently. You know, all of this fresh hype is coming from the US, from Michael Saylor and Elon Musk and US companies buying Bitcoin. So, uh, you know, maybe if somebody says something significant in the US, there will be reaction. But India, it just, you know, the sound comes too slowly from that yeah. part of the world and it, the signal think, doesn't really change anything. And it's interesting you mentioned Elon Musk. I'm sure you've been following his Twitter account. So the early today, he was like mentioning Doge and Doge shot up by 50%. So I think, yeah, it depends who's speaking as well. That happened again? He already yeah, did it, Yeah, no? he's done it a couple of times now. He, I mean, it's a joke to him. He even made a, a little uh, reference to Michael Saylor. He uh, tweeted... Mufasa, was it? Holding up Simba? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the and, then he, and then he said, Dogecoin is the people's crypto. No need to be a giga chad to own, which <laughs> I don't know if you realized it, but it's almost certainly a reference to noted giga chad Michael Saylor, uh, who holds the biggest bags around over $1 billion <laughs> in cryptocurrency. Sorry, over $1 billion in Bitcoin, not in cryptocurrency. Saylor would not be happy if I said he was a crypto fan, Bitcoin fan. <laughs> But yeah, I wonder if Elon Musk and Michael Saylor ever speak or is like Saylor too poor for Elon Musk? Because <laughs> Saylor only has a couple <laughs> billion dollars. Elon, is, he's treating crypto like a joke, really, isn't he? He's kind of trolling Doge. He's not really serious about what How he says. How long did his just, Twitter break last? <laughs> two days. So he actually said on the 2nd of February, going off Twitter for a while. And then he came it's, back on today just to talk about Doge and his SpaceX venture. So he's, he's a little bit eccentric, but he's also a, a bit of a, yeah. They're both a, going a to clown. the moon. Elon yeah. Musk quitting Twitter is like most people quitting smoking. Like it doesn't last long. 
I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. (laughs) But he withdrew his Bitcoin bio line. Oh, really? I haven't checked. Yeah, he he did. And people were disappointed. Yeah, that's a big event in crypto, okay? Who who cares what Christine Lagarde or Jeanette Yellen says? Or the Indian government in that case. Yeah, yeah. We all care what Elon has to say. (laughs) Yeah, let's check Elon Musk's bio line. Anyway, I'm talking about crypto whales and some extravagant ones. Chainalysis, which is a blockchain analytics firm, keep trying map out the crypto usage around the world. Uh, last year, they released a big research on the global crypto adoption. And now they're starting a series on the darknet markets and crypto. And this week, they published a fresh release of this upcoming report. And they named the countries that are most active in the darknet, which means the countries that are sending and receiving most money to the illegal marketplaces, mostly selling drugs. And these leading countries are Russia, the United States, Ukraine, and China. The US and China are no surprise here because these countries are driving the most money volumes in the crypto markets. Russia and China are not that big in terms of volume, but according to again analysis, these countries are leading the world in terms of low-level retail adoption, which means that more people are using crypto and they are using it more actively than in other countries. And surprisingly, Ukraine is the global leader. Like if we believe the analysis methods of analysis of research, Ukraine is like the, the global leader in crypto adoption. Like it's not the biggest country in the terms of volume at all. This is actually interesting because if, uh, if we look at both these reports by Chainalysis, Russia, United States, Ukraine, and China are the leaders in this darknet marketplaces usage. Russia, Ukraine, Venezuela, and China, uh, which is three countries out of the previous four, the global leaders in crypto adoption. So my question is, is this low-level retail adoption actually a dark market adoption? Which is a kind of a, I don't know, a dark thought to think, but quite possible, in fact. I wonder how the uh, Ukraine Department of uh, Digital Transformation feels about being so high up on this list. I know they were so excited to uh, tout that they were the uh, number one in crypto adoption that they front ran the release of that information, as we discovered a couple of months back. Oh, yeah, they published it earlier than Chainalysis, right? Yes, they did. They published earlier than Chainalysis, citing a report that was not yet live. With, and everybody uh, was like, what report? Where is that report? And Chainalysis wouldn't respond. And like the ministry wouldn't respond. And like everyone was like, what's yeah. happening? I bet they wouldn't respond to this part either, because they, they might not be so happy to see that so much money is flowing into uh, darknet markets and presumably into drugs and other illicit goings on through cryptocurrency. Yeah, I mean, this isn't something to be proud of, right, guys? I mean, when it comes to the dark web, it's also impossible to stay on top of what is going on and to monitor crime because it's always changing. But, you know, you've got like people accessing child pornography, firearms. I don't know if you guys have ever, I'm not going to say enter the dark web, but there's so many layers of the internet as well. It's not that straightforward. But I've read reports and not seen myself, but kind of like read stories and what goes on. And it sounds like Come a really scary, <laughs> scary, no. Get that <laughs> tour. Like, Download it sounds tour. like a really scary world out there. 
First of all, like the methods that can be used to actually map out the crypto transactions and crypto usage, they have their limitations because it's quite a tricky task to say where actually the cryptocurrency is flowing from and to. You know, this data is not like straightforwardly put out of the blockchain data. One reason why these two countries, Russia and Ukraine, are so big on the dark market stage is that the biggest darknet market in the world now is called Hydra, and it's primarily serving the uh, Russian-speaking countries, uh, like the, the former Soviet Union countries. It grew into an absolute huge monster. Their business model is that people are paying in Bitcoin online. The, the delivery guys are just leaving the purchases in some you know, place in the park or in a hall of, of an apartment building or somewhere hidden. And they share the location of that, um, of that drop with the customer. So the customer has to go and find that. So there is like zero contact between the delivery person and the buyer. And that scheme just appeared to be very successful. This darknet market, Hydra, it now has 75% of all the darknet market revenue in the world, according to Chainalysis, again. But Taz actually asked a really interesting question, like, is it still good for crypto adoption or we don't want it? Like, this is not what helps. Yeah, you're always going to have shady business going on, but you can also wash transactions, right? I don't know if this is the right terminology, but you can like swap coins with someone else, which kind of like hides your transaction history and you don't leave a trail behind. There's ways of, uh, I don't know too much about the crime scene here, guys, but I have looked into it briefly. Just Yeah, you can mix your coins, but on the blockchain analytics systems, like, um, you know, like probably the one of Chainalysis or its competitors, uh, the coins coming from darknet markets are like labeled red, like they are high risk. And the coins that come from mixers are also labeled as red. If there is an exchange with uh, high KYC standards, it probably will block both money coming from the darknet market and from the mixers, or it might not. That's actually an interesting question. Talking about the adoption in general, does it help to promote the idea in crypto? Do we care what people actually do when they use crypto? I think you're always going to have people who are going to misuse crypto in the dark net, you know, the dark web. That's happening for sure. And there are like global organizations, whether it's like Interpol or FBI or CIA, whatever. I'm sure it's watched very closely. On a smaller level, there's, I mean, I wrote a story this morning as well, how scammers have been targeting users. I don't know if you guys have heard of Discord, which is a gaming platform for, and they've been like giving away free Ethereum, taking data from people. But they've also, you know, it's a very sophisticated way of doing it as well. They've got like fake know your customer KYC identity checks that look really real as well. So there's different ways of scamming. I would like to see some transaction data beyond the darknet market industry because, you know, we talk so much about how cryptocurrency and part of a, a mass adoption is using cryptocurrency like Bitcoin to pay for goods and services. When I think about it, I really don't know of any other industry where the transaction flows are so well mapped out. Of course, that's probably because this is an industry where the regulators and the investigators are very concerned 
with where the money is moving. And so they have more of an incentive to really track all this data. I don't know of another industry in which cryptocurrency payments are so prevalent. No, but this is a fair point because I honestly can't imagine many examples of what I could buy with crypto at this point other than drugs. Probably because crypto is not a legal, like in most countries of the world, crypto is not a legal tender. Like you, you cannot legally pay with it for goods and services. So the businesses that run a, you know, a legal operation don't want to touch it. And, you know, the businesses that are already in the dark just don't care. Like if, if they get in trouble with the law, it will be not because of crypto. It will be for all other reasons. Uh, so they take it anyway. And it's the most convenient way for them. But it would be a huge headache for a legal business to take crypto now uh, for tax reasons, for all kinds of regulatory reasons. Probably, you know, like legal Normal quote-unquote adoption is actually rare, still rare at this point. And one area where cryptocurrency has been used, or at least allegedly has been used in the past, is for sanctions violations, which brings us to the sad now second-year saga for Virgil Griffith, the Ethereum developer who is stuck in federal court over uh, allegations of sanctions violations. A couple days ago, a federal judge denied Virgil Griffith's motion to dismiss charges against him. So this gets a little bureaucratic and technical, but basically Griffith, who is in federal court on allegations that he traveled to North Korea for a discussion about Ethereum that really had the effect of helping the North Koreans evade sanctions. And Griffith, who has pled not guilty, is saying this is a load of bunk. And he requested that the judge dismiss the charges against him. The judge says, absolutely not. You have no grounds to request this. You've already pled not guilty. And furthermore, we have that the government has this evidence that seems to show that you went to North Korea with the understanding that could use this information about Ethereum to evade sanctions. How will this case shake out for Virgil? Is this evidence against him good enough to hold up? And so just to review his case, let's roll the tape on what uh, the government is alleging. Since early 2018, Griffith wanted to establish, and this is from the case papers, wanted to establish an Ethereum environment in North Korea. At one point texting a colleague, quote, we'd love to make an Ethereum trip to the DPRK and set up an Ethereum node. It'll help them circumvent the current sanctions on them. He also oh, sent he text to a that. colleague. Oh, yeah, he said that. that. He also uh, sent <laughs> text to a colleague speculating that while he was not sure why the DPRK was interested in cryptocurrencies, it was, quote, probably avoiding sanctions. And so those are two pretty, I guess one could use the word damning texts for a case that alleges that somebody went to a sanctioned country to share information that could help that country evade sanctions. Now, one of Griffith's long-standing arguments was that he is protected by the principle of freedom of speech. I think it's really interesting because those statements that you just read shows that he kind of knew what he was doing. I thought this was actually an innocent trip to North Korea where he was part of a tech conference and accidentally, you know, broke some law or something. Whereas, I mean, I would love to see North Korea myself. I'm quite an adventurous free spirit. So, you know, give me a chance to travel to a dangerous place like North Korea, I would be there. But I'm also aware of like my citizenship. I'm British. You know, I would never go to certain places in the Middle East, for example, as a woman 
with an Arab name. Like I know what to do and what not to do. Does that make sense? So he should have known what he was doing, I think. He's, he can't be that innocent. Sometimes the guys in tech can be a little bit nerdy and unaware that they might be breaking laws. You know, technology is borderless. We're part of a revolution. But I don't know, those statements that Danny read, it's kind of like, hmm, okay. Yeah, um, if he really had in mind that he's going to help North Korea evade <laughs> sanctions, the US government not going to let him get away with that. But like speaking in general, if we go away for a second from all the reality of uh, regulations and the law and uh, the sanctions regimes and whatever, like crypto has been designed to be, again, sorry, borderless, <laughs> right? And uh, in, in the world of crypto, theoretically, there is no sanctions. There is no possibility that you can put a border between one country and uh, another one. So I'm a bit torn about this case, like as notorious and nefarious that North Korea is, um, you know, the, the, I, think, I think the entire question of like sanctions and uh, cross-border limitations, uh, talking about crypto, is, is a very problematic one. And uh, we're going to need a new discourse for that uh, in the future. No, it'd be interesting to see how this case unfolds. I mean, it's a learning curve for everyone. You know, there's, there's limit to um, progression and what you can and can not do in different states. Sorry, Danny? I will say those are just two texts from a full case. So there's a lot more evidence to be seen. And I guess that is the direction we're headed because with the judge denying uh, Griffith's motion to dismiss, this case does seem to be looking like it's going to go to a jury trial. And so we're going to get to see a full display of the, the evidence against Griffith and his case. And I have to say, these are still just allegations. Uh, the evidence against him and his case for his own innocence. So, you know, I am predisposed to think that someone is not breaking the law just by presenting publicly available information at a conference. However, if you show that you're aware that your actions may be in violation of the law, that, that won't look very good for you if uh, there are ever charges brought against you. But look, the jury trial actually makes it more interesting. What if they have some old school cypherpunk on the panel and he would go like all in Bitcoin and, uh, you know, orange peeling all the other jury members about how anonymity and the, the, the borderless cryptocurrencies are important for the future of the world. Let's hope for Griffiths that's the case then, shall we? Okay, guys, use your crypto responsibly. Don't mess up with shady things. And thank you for listening. Please subscribe to Coindesk Podcasts and especially for the Coindesk Report feed, which includes Borderless. And let us know if you enjoyed the show. We have a special dedicated email box, borderless at coindesk.com. So please write to us if you want to say something. You've been listening to Borderless. I'm Anna Baidakova from Moscow. I'm Tanzia Latza from the UK. And I'm Danny Nelson from the US. See you next week. You've been listening to Borderless, part of the Coindesk Podcast Network. By subscribing to one feed with your favorite player, you'll get free access to all the shows from the editorial team at Coindesk each focused on a particular niche, perspective, or ongoing discussion within the world of cryptocurrency. 
This episode featured Anna Badakova, Danny Nelson, and Tanzil Akhtar, with an announcement by Lila Ledesma. Today's show is produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau, with music by Cody Martin. Did you enjoy the show? We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your preferred service and talk to us directly via email at podcast at coindesk.com.